Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I'm going to start us out today with a quote, a somewhat long quote, from one of my favorite authors of all time, Umberto Eco. Um, his novel, The Name of the Rose, it is my all-time favorite novel. You should read it if you haven't. It has nothing to do with today's episode. But anyway, here's Echo in his 1999 book, Serendipities, talking about Marco Polo and some fairly significant megafauna. He writes, quote, When Marco Polo traveled to China, he was obviously looking for unicorns. Marco Polo was a merchant, not an intellectual, and moreover, when he started traveling, he was too young to have read many books, but he certainly knew all the legends current in his time about exotic countries, so he was prepared to encounter unicorns, and he looked for them. On his way home in Java, he saw some animals that resembled unicorns, because they had a single horn on their muzzles. And because an entire tradition had prepared him to see unicorns, he identified these animals as unicorns. But... Because he was naive and honest, he could not refrain from telling the truth. And the truth was that the unicorns he saw were very different from those represented by a millennial tradition. They were not white, but black. They had pelts like buffalo, and their hooves were as big as elephants. Their horns, too, were not white, but black. Their tongues were spiky, and their heads looked like wild boars. In fact, what Marco Polo saw was the rhinoceros. We cannot say that Marco Polo lied. He told the simple truth, namely, that unicorns were not the gentle beasts people believed them to be. But he was unable to say he had found new and uncommon animals. Instinctively, he tried to identify them with a well-known image. Cognitive science would say that he was determined by a cognitive model. He was unable to speak about the unknown, but could only refer to what he already knew and expected to meet. He was a victim of his background books, unquote. Now, I'm working from Echo there. I can't tell you if that actually is something that Marco Polo saw or did not see. I have not actually dove into his travels, but I really like that anecdote. I really like the idea that people's reasoning and their idea space and their way of seeing the world can be informed by, but also extremely limited by, the media they consume. And the phenomenon that Echo describes of being the victim of your background books, that isn't just limited to Marco Polo, you know, the Venetian merchant who inspired many things, including a pretty bad Netflix series. Yeah, if you haven't watched Marco Polo on Netflix, don't. That phenomenon is something that we all deal with, of trying to fit reality to our stories. And in the 1500s, the rhinoceros was the center of that all over again. It was a source of confusion for Europeans, where popular media was passed around, viewed, and talked about much more so than the real thing itself. So, in 1514, Portuguese diplomats arrived in Cambay, which is now in northwest India, in what is known as Gujarat. Um, they were hoping to get permission to build a fort and a trade station on a nearby island, but for the purposes of our story, their actual diplomatic mission isn't all that important. What is important to us is that the sultan of that area, of Cambay, Muzaffar Shah II, he was kind of intrigued by these foreigners who'd shown up in his territory, and he wanted to send a gesture of goodwill to their leader. 
So he decided to send their king a gift. And this was not something that was just going to be, say, a nice hat or a really interesting sword or that kind of thing. Nope, this was something that was going to be suitably impressive. The kind of thing that one king would give to another. How about a rhinoceros? So Muzaffar Shah II said to the Portuguese diplomats, Hey, I got something for your guy, Manuel I. Um, when you go back home, take this rhino with you. And they did. Now, instead of deciding to keep the rhino as a pet, you know, at his castle or whatever, Manuel I decided to re-gift it, and he sent it off to Pope Leo X. And oddly, this is not the first time that he had done this. Uh, Manuel I also came in possession of an elephant and sent that elephant off to the Pope as well. So he knew that the Pope had a pet elephant that lived at the Vatican and you know, did elephant stuff. And I guess Manuel I thought that a rhino would be a good addition to the Pope's very large animal collection. So he put the rhino on a boat, but the rhino unfortunately did not make it. It died off the coast of Italy in a shipwreck. Even so, though, the rhino would inspire the subject of today's episode. Word of the creature got around. Uh, after all, Having a fairly large exotic megafauna on your vessel is the type of thing that sailors tend to talk about, and descriptions of the rhinoceros ended up, you know, making their way to the ears of people who wanted to see it. This included a German merchant called Valentin Fernandez. He had an opportunity to actually sit down and draw the rhino, and after he made this pen and ink drawing of the creature, he sent it to somebody he knew would be able to turn it into mass media in the 1500s. Painter and printmaker Albrecht Dürer. Now, Albrecht Dürer was a celebrity artist before celebrity artists were a thing. He put out a huge volume of work. He was very successful at a young age. He was in his 20s when he started getting popular. And what makes him really important is that he was making prints. Uh, at the time, paintings and woodcuts were far more expensive but the technology that he was using allowed a wider audience to actually see his work. And people loved him. Also, Albrecht Dürer did a self-portrait where he made himself look like Jesus for some reason. But anyway, he got his hand on Fernandez's drawing, and this pen and ink drawing would become the basis for one of his most significant works, maybe his single most significant work. And Dürer made that image into this bulky, armored, intimidating animal. It was huge. It had metal plates on its side and shoulders and rump. It was wearing what looked like a gorget. It had a giant horn coming out of the front of its nose. It had another smaller horn coming out from between its shoulder blades. It had these big, scaly, stompy feet. It was a rhino, or at least what Durer understood a rhino to look like, from the one image he was working from, and from descriptions he had of older texts. For a modern person who's actually seen a rhino in a zoo or something, it looks kind of weird, sort of un-rhino-like. It looks maybe like a fossilized rhino, or a robot rhino, or a rhino that somebody has put barding on. But for Durer, the rhino was this, like, fierce-plated tank animal. And the print he made also had a small description of the animal with it. His text read, quote, On the 1st of May, in the year 1513 A.D., 
By the way, he got the date wrong, but moving on. The powerful king of Portugal, Manuel Lisbon, brought such a living animal from India called the rhinoceros. This is an accurate representation. It is the color of a speckled tortoise, and is almost entirely covered with thick scales. It is the size of an elephant, but has shorter legs and is almost invulnerable. It has a strong pointed horn on the tip of its nose, which it sharpens on stones. It is the mortal enemy of the elephant. The elephant is afraid of the rhinoceros, for when they meet, the rhinoceros charges with its head between its front legs and rips open the elephant's stomach, against which the elephant is unable to defend itself. The rhinoceros is so well armed that the elephant cannot harm it. It is said that the rhinoceros is fast, impetuous, and cunning." Unquote. So, rhinos do not eat elephants, rhinos do not hunt or rip open the bellies of elephants, uh, and also rhinos are not covered in scales. However, I will admit that the thing that Durer is describing sounds uh, kind of awesome and badass, and I would want a ticket to that fight. But that thing about the rhino sharpening its horn on stones and being like the arch-nemesis of the elephant was probably derived from Pliny the Elder's natural history. Uh, again, Durer is working on books that are much older than him, and on secondhand knowledge, he is creating mass media based on the resources that he has, which are in turn based on hearsay, which are also in turn only based on somebody seeing something, maybe once or twice, and then embellishing or exaggerating what they saw or even didn't see. During Durer's lifetime, he sold a lot of this rhino print with this image of this powerful armored beast and a description of it. And he sold probably about 4,000 to 5,000 copies of that print, which might sound low to you. Uh, after all, if only 4,000 or 5,000 people, you know, watch a TV show or a movie or listen to a podcast, that's not a lot. But that was a ton back in the 1500s. That was, you know, wide audience penetration mass media back when he was working. Uh, and again, this is because he's making prints rather than paintings or expensive woodcuts, so people can actually buy and display this thing. There is a possible explanation, by the way, for why his iconic and popular image of the rhinoceros was so odd-looking, what with the scales and the armor and all that. Uh, one possible explanation is that from a distance, the folds of rhino's skin, particularly the Indian rhino's skin, they can kind of look like interlocking sheets of metal. Um, if you look at a Google image search of Indian rhinoceroses, rhinoceri, whatever the plural is, you will see that there are different big sheets of skin on them. And from a distance, if you squint, you could kind of maybe fill in that as armor. Um, another very likely explanation is that the animal that Fernandez originally sketched had a skin condition. Being socked away in the hold of a ship is probably not the healthiest place for a rhinoceros, and after its journey, the poor guy could have had a collection of scabs, lesions, cuts, rashes, lacerations, the rest of it all over its hide. So Fernandez might have mistaken that skin condition as normal and representative of what rhinos look like, and tried his best to duplicate it in his initial drawing. Then Durer, for his part, took Fernandez's drawing and turned it into his print. Anyway, this is a great example of why, if you're studying something, 
you don't have an N of one, you don't have a sample size of one, and why anecdotal evidence is not really evidence. But in this case, Europeans just had this to go on when they wanted to know what rhinos looked like. And the print really informed Europeans' views of the rhinoceros for a long, long time. I mentioned earlier that Durr's print sold between four to 5,000 copies during his lifetime, but that doesn't include all the other versions of it. There were also copies, there were derivative works, there were other artists who did their take on his work, making subtle changes and making it their own. There is one artist who did kind of a Kairoscuro shadowed versions of Durr's rhinoceros. There were other prints of it that showed the rhinoceros in chains or ropes because it was so big and dangerous looking that it had to be bound. Alessandro de' Medici of the Medici family, the big deal Florentine house, uh, actually had a rhinoceros put on his noble seal. And if you look at it, it's Durr's rhinoceros. There are the scales, the plates, and there's the extra horn between the shoulder blades. And this thing was duplicated and circulated and copied again and again and again. It became the background books that Europeans were consulting when they thought of what rhinos mean. In 1741, a rhinoceros named Clara stepped off a boat in Rotterdam and became one of the first living rhinos that Europe had seen in a long, long time. Clara went on tour, showed up at various zoos, uh, lots of people came to gawk at her, uh, and was really popular. And there were several sketches and paintings and prints of Clara's image uh, while she was alive. She, like Durer's rhinoceros, was an Indian rhino, so she still had the folds of skin that kind of looked like interlocking armor plates. But the contemporary paintings of Clara, they don't depict her with, say, the scaly feet, the different sort of metallic-looking bits to her, the thing on the neck that looks like a gorget, or the extra shoulder horn, or any of that. She looks far more like what we think of as a rhino. But still, even with the presence of Clara, even with the presence of an Indian rhino in the flesh, in Europe, being popular and getting depicted, and those depictions getting passed around, the truth took a long time to really take hold and permeate through Europe, and Durer's rhinoceros was still the go-to image until the 1800s. And in some ways, it's still the go-to image now. I mean, you go to any poster shop, and you'll probably be able to get a copy. Go to a museum gift shop, and you'll be able to get a copy. It's on t-shirts, it's on, like, refrigerator magnets, it's still on all kinds of media. It is one of the most successful pieces of media of all time, not just because it's been duplicated so much, but also because it's an icon in and of itself, and it helped shape people's truth, which is fascinating and unsettling to think about. Last thing, one thing I was curious about for this episode, but never found out, was whether or not any of Durer's prints or any of the derivative work uh, made their way to the Sultan of Cambay. I don't know if uh, Muzaffar Sharaf II ended up seeing the art that was inspired by his royal gift uh, and ended up turning into a piece of erroneous pop culture. And I really hope he did. I really hope that at some point, some diplomat or functionary would have presented him with a European print showing 
his royal gift, the rhino, he intended to give to Manuel I, and said, Your Majesty, some printmaker half a world away drew a picture of your present to a foreign king, and I hope that the sultan would have looked at Durer's rhinoceros and been able to smile and been at least a little amused by it. By the way, you might have noticed that there was not a podcast last week. I was busy. I was officiating a wedding. Uh, it was an honor to do so, but this operation has 1.5 people working for it. If you want to help out those 1.5 people and help us keep making media and information and help us keep making this show, do become a monthly supporter. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, click on the link to support the show, and thank you all of you who support the show every single month. That means a lot. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, also, go on iTunes, give us ratings, reviews, the rest of it. Tell people you know about the show, friends, enemies, frenemies. Uh, share us on social media. Share us on Facebook. Share us on Twitter. You know, Tumblr, Snapchat, whatever. And I am on social media. I am on Facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Also on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. By the way, the Pope's elephant, Hanno, that is very much a story for a different time. We'll get to that eventually.